Today's episode, we're going to be looking at signification. So what we mean by that is going to be the influence of China and Chinese culture on non-Chinese societies. So you're going to have to forgive me for the little bit of the delay in posting this episode, but I think you're going to enjoy this one because it's hopefully on the shorter and sweeter side. But for my students, at least, it's going to finish with a little bit of a tart taste because there's a bit of a homework assignment this time around. If you remember in the last episode, I did mention that I'm going to start posting relevant key concepts on each blog post as opposed to just sitting here before you reading them word for word to you. I think it's going to be a little bit more of a preferred method. So what that allows me to do is jump right away into the content with the key concept connections where we'll begin with Japan, move on to Korea, and we'll wrap things up with Vietnam today. Let's begin. So, starting off our key concept connections with the signification of Japan. Kind of a weird one to start with because the Chinese never do invade Japan. But although that never happens, we've got to understand that Chinese culture begins to penetrate the islands of Japan by the time of the Sui and especially the Tang dynasties. In Japan, there is a reform effort that occurs during the 7th century. So we're talking kind of in that transition between the Sui and Tang and a little bit of political instability in China. Nonetheless, there's a reform effort that takes place in Japan called the Taika Reforms. And this is going to mark a significant turn towards adopting Chinese political practices. Uh, So in these type of reforms, you're going to get Chinese characters adopted, history beginning to be considered in a dynastic pattern as the Chinese have been doing it, in case you haven't yet realized. Hopefully you have. Uh, the, The Japanese are going to adopt a feudal land ownership system. They're going to start to adopt that equal field system that you'll recall having heard about with the Tang Dynasty in the previous episode. And they're going to establish an educated bureaucracy, among other kind of Chinese-type reforms. And it's also during this time that more Japanese officials are going to start to be sent into China in order to learn more from Tang-era society. And this is going to be followed in continuity by the next kind of major period in China known as the Nara period, which is named after their capital city. And that lasts from about 710 to 794 CE. And so the construction of the capital city, Nara, occurs at this time, and it's going to be modeled after the Tang capital, which is Chang'an at this time. Um, But here's the thing, is that we're going to see this pattern happen over and over throughout this episode. These reforms are going to be met with opposition, especially in Japan from the aristocracy, who has been in the typical positions of power and privilege, and also from the Buddhist monks who feel their power is declining at this new, emerging, growing class of scholar bureaucrats. And so as we we leave the Nara period and move on to another period called the Haiyan period, um, power is going to start to shift 
And this is a major theme of this period in Japan. Traditionally, there has been an emperor in Japan who has held political authority when the country has been united. But now what's happening during this Heian period is aristocratic families are starting to gain more and more influence over the imperial court. And the, the major family of the Heian period is going to be the Fujiwara clan who grow in power. And again, this is thanks to their growing influence in the emperor's court at this time. Um, so that China, that excuse me, that Japanese court life is going to be really important during this time, and it's during this period that's going to be known for the one of the greatest novels that gives insights into Japanese court life during this time, and that's going to be called the Tale of Genji. And this book is actually written by a female court attendant, and her name was Lady Murasaki Shikubu. It details the life of this fictional prince and his court who kind of spend their days doing things like writing poetry, um, womanizing, trying to, to find that significant other in their life, or just, or, you know, just have a good time as you do in 11th century Japan. You guys know how it goes. I don't have to get into too much detail about that. Come on. Um... But yeah, anyway, like, like I was saying, this, this Japanese aristocracy is going to cause society to fragment because as their power, as their influence grows, different clans are going to be competing for power and influence over the emperor. And so the emperor, who used to be the, the sole source of political authority, which then everything would kind of come from and come down from, I should say, that's no longer happening. So there's these, these families at the top clawing and competing for power. And so the equal field system is also going to start to be corrupted during this time. If you remember, we talked about this during uh, the later Tang era, uh, where the equal field system just fell into disrepair. Families were becoming corrupt, just holding on to land, finding exceptions to the law that they could kind of work their way around. Um so yeah, same thing's happening in Japan. Land is coming under the control of fewer and fewer families. And it's going to be during this time where we really see the Japanese feudal system in the sense of this mutual antagonism and competition existing between the various lords of Japan. Samurai armies are going to grow in size during this time. So friends who love their samurai... You're, you're in your sweet spot right now with, with feudal Japan at this time. This is, this is really when you get the emergence of samurai, and they're going to last until Tom Cruise is defeated in that famous movie, The Last Samurai, RIP. But yeah, they're going to be serving their respective lords. They're going to be following the code known as Bushido, which is going to center on the values of courage and honor above everything else. And by the 12th century, there's going to be a new aristocratic family known as the Minamoto, who take control of Japan. But what they're going to do, and this is a really, really pivotal move, and it's a really influential move for really the rest of Japanese history, including the modern time, they are going to take real political authority, but keep the emperor in his seat of power as a figurehead, while the military leader of the Minamoto, who's known as the Shogun, will be the one who exercises true political authority. But this allows for the Chinese emperor who rules from a family known as the Yamato to maintain, again, that ceremonial title. And believe it or not, this is the oldest imperial family in world history. And we can historically date their first legitimately verifiable emperor 
to the 6th century CE, but Japanese legend holds that Yamato emperors have begun as early as the 7th century BCE. So we're, we're talking anywhere from 1400 years on the low end that they've been as emperors of China to on the higher end of things, maybe closer to 26, 2700 years. It's quite some time. Um, but yeah, so what's going to really be happening during this time now is that we are going to see Japan's political traditions really begin to distance themselves from China's as you have the declining influence of the emperor, the ascending influence, again, of that shogun, that military leader, um, feudal Japanese society really fragmenting and fracturing. It's, it's really going to change a lot. And this pattern of rule that we're seeing here is going to continue from about the 12th century through the 16th centuries, where Japan exists in this state of feudal decentralization. Um, even, even with a shogun's authority, that rule is going to not be able to be held in place. And so centralized rule through a shogun can't even stick around. And we're going to see Japan come to be ruled by what are called the daimyo, who are the more regional lords of Japan. And at times we'll even see them competing with one another in kind of this feudal, multi-sided civil war, as they typical, typically refer to it as. And these daimyo are warring with each other to create centralized control, maybe establish themselves as the shogun. And so it won't really be till the next time period where we see Japan emerge out of this era. So that's going to bring our attention on over to Korea and Vietnam. Now, both of these places, and your textbook is going to mention this, had been invaded by Chinese militaries since the time of the Qin and the Han Dynasty. But that Chinese influence had faded as the Han Dynasty had faded from history. So we really see a reemergence of Chinese influence there as the Tang Dynasty grows in power and authority in China. Their reach, again, throughout East and Southeast Asia is going to kind of reestablish itself. Um, starting with Korea, we're going to see a compromise emerge between the Tang Dynasty and a group known as the Silla in Korea. And uh, this compromise is going to recognize, on paper at least, that the Chinese have authority over Korea. But in reality, what we're going to end up seeing is Korea maintains uh, a sense of political independence, and they really end up benefiting from this position because in exchange for their supposed subservience to the Chinese, the Koreans are able to benefit from economic and cultural connections with the Chinese. Now, they do have to pay some type of tribute, but again, that tribute is paid back to them uh, many times over through the economic benefits and the cultural benefits they get from Chinese interaction. But particularly, I'm going to really emphasize there, the economic benefits that come through with it. Um, and, and sure, Korean leaders have to do what's called the kowtow, or they have to bow low, which we'll see more of in this class later on, especially as we get into periods four and period five, when the Europeans start to make their way into China. Um but these Korean officials who have to go to Chinese court in order to kowtow, again, they're benefiting because as they travel there, they're learning the ways of Chinese culture. They're learning the ways of Chinese political life. Um, again, just like the Japanese had done, they're modeling their capital city back then known as Kumsong, which is modern day Gyeongju. Uh, they're modeling those, that city after Chang'an. And Korean aristocrats are starting to gravitate towards the teachings of Confucius kind of just like we saw the Japanese doing. 
But what we also see here, and again, as we see in uh, China, in, excuse me, in Japan and in Vietnam, um, Buddhism is going to remain kind of that popular philosophical or religious belief system among the vast majority of Koreans. But you've got to even understand that amongst the Korean aristocracy, in spite of their support of Confucianism, they really never fully embraced that Chinese system of awarding political power based on merit because for their history, it's been awarded to them based on status. So if that's benefiting them at that time, they don't really see the, the incentive as to like, why move to a merit-based system when I'm already benefiting from this system that bases my position in society on the class that I'm from, naturally speaking. Now, Vietnam, on the other hand, is going to be a much more difficult land for the Chinese to establish their dominance over. Um, Tang forces are able to take over Vietnam, Vietnamese towns slowly but surely in the Red River Valley. Um, people here adopt Chinese political philosophies and agricultural techniques. However, Confucian principles to a certain extent grow some roots in Vietnam. Um, they are going to adopt a lot of those beliefs, but they do not grow deep roots because local officials are going to end up identifying far more with local peasants than with a central government. And think about what's key in Confucian society is that top-down structure. It's knowing your role within the grand scheme of that ladder of relationships that exist in Chinese society. And if you have local officials identifying more with local peasants than they identify with the central government, they're going to be less inclined to serve on behalf of the central government. So that's one problem for the Confucian system. Another problem is that Buddhist monks are able to form stronger ties with the Vietnamese peasantry than they could with the Chinese peasantry. So again, there's going to be a disconnect there between the peasantry and that Confucian system. It is going to be influential, just not as pervasively influential as it is in China. But needless to say, as the Tang Dynasty fades in power, so too does its influence in Vietnam. And this is largely due to, you know, really it's the distance between the center of Chinese imperial power at this time in Chang'an and Vietnam, not to mention the mountainous terrain that really separates the two territories, just making the transfer of armies, people, whatever it may be, a lot more difficult to pull off than maybe elsewhere in East Asia. And it must be said, too, that Vietnam is going to be able to hold on to some of their more traditional values that stand in contrast to those of China. For instance, you're going to see women participating more um, economically speaking, uh, being involved in business leadership type roles in Vietnam, which is, of course, something that Chinese women, especially in the growing Neo-Confucian times as the Song Dynasty rolls around, we're not going to see Chinese women exercising that type of influence in economics. So far as zooming in feature, I just really wanted to touch on something that kind of find it to be a shame that your book doesn't really talk about and you guys kind of miss out on. And I'm sure it's something that you've seen um, in a history book or, or in a magazine on the internet somewhere. And that is uh, Angkor Wat. And it's actually in my classroom. You could see it there hanging on the wall. Well, come see me. I'll point it out to you. Be happy to do it. But, you know, Angkor Wat's kind of cool to teach about and to talk about because it, it, it keeps in mind for you that 
it's not just Chinese influence that is spreading through East or Southeast Asia at this time. Um, don't forget, we absolutely have seen the spread of Islam through this region, uh, as we were talking earlier on in this unit. And we also see Indian influence in Southeast Asia. And I don't think this is known any more widely or popularly than with the temple complex in modern-day Cambodia that's known as Angkor Wat. And uh, this, this temple complex is going to be built by the Khmer Empire, who reached their height during the 12th century. So we're talking long after the glory days of the Tang Dynasty, and just as the Song are really beginning their southern retreat as those nomadic invaders are coming in from the north. So this temple is considered the most famous of all of the temples located within Angkor, which is the former capital of the Khmer Empire. And Angkor Wat is intended to demonstrate the power of their king during this time. And we've seen this, come on, several times in class by now, temples being constructed to demonstrate the authority of a king. And folks, we will continue to see that. Um, and, and it must be said, you guys have to understand, Angkor was a city that was most likely populated by up to 1 million people at the height of its powers. And if you were to really take a good look at it now, it's, it's really hard to imagine that seeing all the, the growth of jungle and what's kind of overtaken it, kind of similar to what we see in Latin America in a lot of those former um, imperial cities. But Angkor Wat was originally dedicated to the Hindu god Vishnu, and its 500-acre complex features a temple, kind of the, the heart of it all, on which is depicted a Hindu funeral, which was for King Suryavarman II, who was the king of Khmer, who was responsible for building this temple. And if you're saying to yourself, I bet he YouTubed how to pronounce that name, you'd be absolutely right. But eventually this complex was abandoned as Buddhism begins to grow in popularity through Southeast Asia. Um, even eventually, it must be said that Angkor Wat becomes a Buddhist pilgrimage site by about the 16th century. Um, there's a lot more to say. There's, there's, a, there's a great National Geographic, I believe, or Smithsonian Channel documentary that's available on YouTube that I'll post if you ever wanted to check it out. It's up there. I'll throw it out there for you. It's pretty long. It's like 45 minutes. There's a lot more that could be said that's kind of like really nuanced and, and minuscule. But I just kind of some food for thought that Chinese culture is not the only thing that is spreading in East or Southeast Asia during this time. All right, so for today's explainer, I thought it'd be appropriate to kind of uh, take something that we've been working on in class, at least in the 2018 school year, and I'm sure as we go into later years, if I use this episode again, um, something that we'll be focusing on in class at this point, which is just thinking about claims and evidence. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to share with you a general argument and I want you to think about what type of evidence you would use to support it. And please, I'm encouraging you, share your thoughts with friends um, or classmates. If you had to support this argument, what would you say? It's probably it's a good thing to discuss because it's going to review a lot of the things that you'll have read and what I've discussed in the episode. And this is something I think by now it's really appropriate for us to really focus and, and work on is to say, okay, we can develop a thesis statement, but how do we organize that argument and how do we go about proving it 
And I think that's a really key part that we can focus on right now. So here is the kind of rough thesis that I would give you for this argument. Although Japanese and Vietnamese cultures initially embraced features of Confucian culture, they all faced their own unique obstacles preventing the full application of a Chinese political system. Okay, so that's the claim that I'd be making um, or my thesis statement I'm going to actually say for a full essay. So if I were writing this essay in class, here's how I would set it up. My first body paragraph, I would talk about what are the similar features that are being adopted by both the Japanese and the Vietnamese um, from Chinese Confucian culture. That's my first body paragraph. Second body paragraph, I would say, could be what are the obstacles that prevent the Japanese from fully being able to adopt Chinese political culture, the Chinese political system? The third body paragraph, same concept. What are the other obstacles that prevent the Vietnamese from fully applying or adopting the Chinese political system? Okay, so again, all I'm asking you to do here is to think about what evidence you would include in these body paragraphs to support the thesis statement that I've mentioned here. I will post kind of my rough outline for this in the episode description as well. Consider this your little tart finish. This is your homework assignment. Again, please collaborate with your classmates. Share ideas with each other because who knows, maybe this comes up in class in the near future. There's an article that was published in National Geographic, and it is called Why is Confucius Still Relevant Today? His Sound Bites Hold Up. Now, this isn't particular to the Tang or the Song era or the spread of Confucianism to Korea, Japan, or Vietnam, but I thought it was kind of a cool, to a certain extent, there's some changes in continuities being discussed about China throughout the entirety of its history, at least since the life and times of Confucius, um, but kind of just talks about how if we view China's history in a longer arc than just what's happened since the communist revolution, there's a, there's a lot of Confucian patterns and traditions that are being used or are not being used and should be used. And I think it's a neat article, something we maybe look at uh, later on in class this year as we kind of round off our study of China uh, towards, towards the spring. But uh, if you guys are interested in looking at it, post it for you, you can check it out. If not, totally understand. I'm sure you're very busy. But uh, so, yeah, that's it. Let's end it there. I went longer than I thought I did. I'm sorry. I'll try harder next time. For now, take care, everyone. I'll talk to you soon.